It's called the black man is God. It's called the black man is God. Next hour. This is for the children. You know what I'm saying? I got this idea from myself, of course. But this is for the children. I got this prediction. This will be the biggest upset in all of fighting history. The easiest fight of my life. You think your cousin can with me? You really do? Anybody on your watch? Anybody in my family? No. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Another one, Jay Hicks with the Hip Hop Sports Support Podcast coming to you on Thursday evening, February the 10th. Just three short days, less than three short days away from crowning a new NFL champion. I got to say, y'all, I'm not really feeling this this, this extra week in between, like... not, and I'm not talking about the week in between the championship weekend and the Super Bowl. I'm talking about the extra week in the season because now we've bumped the Super Bowl all the way back to like February 12th. When I was a kid, it was played like on January 20th or 23rd or something like that. And it's got bumped all the way to the end of January. Then it got bumped into the first week of February. Now it's getting bumped into the second week of February. We have the NBA trade deadline going down right now. And now we got to compete. With the Super Bowl and the trade deadline. Like, I can only focus on one thing at a time. Okay? The sports gods, they're not looking out for us. Okay? Why would they give us... I mean, this is too much. You know, save some for the middle of August or the middle of July when nothing's going on. Um, You know, I'm just saying. Like, I didn't... I'm not really... You know, the extra week to the regular season and it throws all the stats off. You know, I mean, yeah, it's more football, but okay. It's just not necessary. I'm just saying, you know. Um... So much to get to, uh, so much to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about the Super Bowl. I want to talk about the uh, championship week. Those are the, the main things we want to hit on. I, I guess, I, I mean, I guess I can touch on uh, the the Brian Flores lawsuit at the top of the show. I mean, y'all have already heard it by now, but uh, just real quick, you know, you guys can get at us at hiphopsportsupport.com. That is the website. Please like and subscribe and rate the podcast. I always tell you guys where to find it, but I fail to tell you guys to like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. Can you guys do that for us? Because that would help us out a lot, okay? So just go ahead. When you find a podcast on iTunes or wherever, like it, you know, subscribe to it, and then leave a comment, something like that. Give us five stars, six stars, eight and a half stars, however many stars you can give. You know, I know you normally can't give more than five, but we'll take as many stars as we can get. So nothing less than five. I think we can establish that. No less than five stars, okay? Um, 
Yeah, real quick, man. The the Brian Flores lawsuit was kind of a bombshell that came out about a week and a half ago, or whatever. Also, Tom Brady retired. Hello, uh, big deal for me. But I'll touch on that in a moment. Just the real, the real quick on the Brian Brian Flores thing. I mean, I'm. I don't think anybody should be surprised that this is still going on in the NFL. Even, you know, their best efforts to try to raise awareness about diversity issues and uh, just issues that deeply affect the black community. And yet and still we have these black coaches that cannot seem to find jobs. Um, you know, it, it is it is uh, a problem. The one thing that stood out to me, though, and I think I'm going to take like two minutes to explain. And it seems elementary. And I know that. But if we learn nothing else from the George Floyd incident um, in 2020, summer 2020, if we learn nothing else from that, my biggest one of my biggest takeaways from that absolute tragedy and, and all of the repercussions that took place after that was how brutally ignorant so many white people are. Good white people, you know, you know, a lot of good white people out there you know what i'm saying but a lot of well-intentioned white people a lot of white people that don't fancy themselves as racist that don't have any uh, a prejudice bone in their body those folks exist right but there are a lot of white people who are just like that that are just woefully ignorant to a lot of the trials and a lot of the issues that face black america and so that came out, you know, in, in a variety of different ways for me personally as the George Floyd events and everything after that unfolded because there was just a lot of revelations that, that white people around me in my personal life were just like, you know, I didn't, I had no idea, Justin. What? I can't believe that. I'm, I'm so sorry. It's just like, y'all, how did you not know that this was going on? Like, have you been living under a rock? Like, yes, these things happen in America all the time. I'm not just talking about murdering innocent black people in the streets by at the hands of law enforcement. I'm talking about just actions of racism in motion taking place every single day of our lives all the time. And the fact that we as black people have to carry around our blackness with us all the time. I wear it every single day. I'm conscious of it at all moments, every single day when I'm at work, when I'm at home, when I'm, you know, out in the streets, when I'm at the store, it never goes away. I can never take my blackness off and hang it up in the closet when I come home in the evening. It doesn't work that way. And so all of the complications that come with that, all of the complex history and all that stuff and all of the, the, the infighting that happens amongst black people and everything else that comes in, all the baggage that comes with it, it's, it's a real thing. And black people, or excuse me, white folks just seem to, many of them have no idea that any of this ever, ever happens. And so um, the reason why there not being any black coaches in the NFL is a problem is because the league is overwhelmingly black. The league is 70% black, but it's owned exclusively by white people, right? So all the owners, the 32 owners, I believe all of them are white. Maybe there's one that's mixed race or something, but I'm pretty sure they're all white. Um, They're pretty much all old men. And these old rich white men have these teams. And of course you have your coach and you have your quarterback. These are positions of authority. And these are positions uh, that I've always long believed to have been of uh, intellectual in nature, right? So you need to be of a certain level of intelligence 
and have a certain level of smarts in order to run a team as a coach, as a coordinator, as a quarterback. What's happened is, is that in spite of the fact that the league is 70% black, a handful of quarterbacks were black for like, I don't know, 85 years in the NFL up until like recently. Like we just started seeing black quarterbacks become normal. I mean, when I was a kid, it was Randall Cunningham and Warren Moon. And I think that was it. Like literally, like that was it. It was just those two guys. Warren Moon couldn't even get in the NFL at first. You know what I'm saying? And then over time, you know, Michael Vick came along and then other folks came along and, you know, and now it's much more commonplace to see black quarterbacks still not, you know, at the numbers at which you see white quarterbacks, but, you know, we're just now starting to see it become regular. And we see Lamar Jackson and Cam Newton and Patrick Mahomes, and we see these guys having terrific amounts of success in the NFL. And I think that that's, it says something because it not only does it show that black folks, you know, have the athletic ability, but also the intellectual ability to get the job done. Um, and even guys like Mahomes, for instance, or Russell Wilson can do it. Uh, they, can, they can certainly scramble, but they can also do it from the pocket and win games and win Super Bowls from the pocket. And there's always been this longstanding connection between coaching and offense. And so the belief typically is that, you know, I mean, there's defensive coaches out there, of course, but especially nowadays with the way the league is trending, all offense, all the coaches are offensive coaches. And a lot of those coaches are former quarterbacks, even at the professional or collegiate level. And so what happens is, is you have these ex-quarterbacks rising in the ranks of, of coaching and becoming offensive coordinators and head coaches, you're not going to typically see an offensive line coach rise to the ranks of becoming an offensive coordinator because that's just not, you know, the job skills to play those two positions typically don't align with what, you know, constructing an entire offense would look like. So as a result, you have uh, lots of offensive coaches uh, and, but historically all the quarterbacks have been white. So quarterback is the one position that is, deemed to be the most intellectual in nature. And so that's where most of the coaches come from. So you have ex-quarterbacks becoming coaches, but for a long time, black people didn't even get the opportunity to be quarterbacks. And so now you have black coaches, but there's a ceiling on being a black coach because so many black people are skill position players, right? So is it is it uncommon to see black linebackers coaches or defensive backs? But no, coaches, no. And is it uncommon to see black running backs coaches? Not at all. They're all over the place. They're like literally everywhere. But then when it comes time to talk about being a coordinator and then being a head coach, for some reason, the numbers dwindle. We know that for years, it was assumed that black people were not smart enough to be successful quarterbacks in the NFL or successful coaches, therefore, in the NFL. I mean, there are, I think I heard today that there are still 12 franchises in the NFL that have never had a black head coach. But there's a disconnect there. In a league that's 70% black, you're basically saying you guys are good enough to run and tackle, but you're not good enough to think the game through. And therefore, you can't be a coach because you're not good enough to think the game through. And that is the problem. In a game that is has, what, 2,000, 3,000? Guys in there, I think there's two th- over, like around 2,000 NFL players in the league. 52 guys on 32 teams, so whatever that math is. 
2,500, whatever. I don't know. And of that, 70% are black. But you're telling me that only one or two of them have the capacity to be a head coach? That's a problem because it sends the message still in 2022 after George Floyd and after Breonna Taylor and all of that, after all of the uh, awakeness that the country underwent in the last year and a half, after all of that, we still are in a position where, nah, man, I need a white guy to run my team. Are these white guys qualified? Oftentimes, not really. Are there black candidates that are qualified that can't seem to get jobs for whatever reason? Yeah. <laughs> guys that take people to the playoffs like Jim Caldwell and guys who have run offenses like Eric Bieniemy. The guy who had Eric Bieniemy's job before him was Matt Nagy. Matt Nagy just got fired as the Chicago Bears head coach, but he was there for about four or five years. Now, you could say Andy Reid runs, runs the offense in Kansas City, so we shouldn't give, put too much credence into what the offensive coordinator is doing for the Chiefs, and that's fine. But then why does Matt Nagy get the job? You know what I'm saying? But Eric Bieniemy cannot get a job as a head coach. He don't even if he's getting interviewed anymore. So, you know, th- this is the disconnect. So for all those folks that are out there wondering, why is that? Why are they making such a big deal about there not being enough black coaches? Because I know there's a lot of white people out there that don't understand or don't care to understand and don't see the value in it. They don't understand like why this is such an issue. The reason is is because. The message, the subtle message that it's sending is that black people are not smart enough to be a head coach and be successful in the NFL. That is the problem. Okay? I wanted to make sure that we covered that, had the historical context, and just understood why all that makes sense. Because there's a lot of people out there that are aware of that. There's a lot of white people out there that are aware of that. But I know there are so many white people that just don't get it. And that's what I learned from the George Floyd episode. Was just, there are a lot of folks that just don't get it. They just don't understand what it's like to be black in America. And you will never understand it. But as long as we as black folks try to convey it, and as long as you have the willingness to listen, white America, there can be some healing, Right? That's where healing starts. And so maybe these owners just see these black coaches and they feel like they're not relatable or they can't sit down and get a beer with them or they wouldn't invite them to their country club or they wouldn't want their daughter to come home with them. I don't know what it is. But this is an issue because the message is loud and clear that, okay, these these black guys are good enough to run and catch the ball, but they're not good enough to think the game through. And that is unbelievably insulting to black people. We know that black coaches are qualified. We know that there are many white coaches that are unqualified, but they still keep getting jobs. Guys like Joe Judge, for instance. How did he... That was a bad hire in the moment when the Giants hired him two years ago. He was a special teams coach for the Patriots. A special teams coach for the Patriots? You went from special teams to head coach. That's the, that's the jump you made. And there's qualified black candidates out there that can't even get a legitimate interview. Y'all see the disconnect? So I just want to spend a couple minutes talking about that just so you guys understood it because I know there's a certain segment of the population that just does not understand that. And so 
Thank you for, for listening to me on that. Tom Brady's retirement. We know he's the greatest quarterback that ever lived. I've said that on numerous occasions. I've been, I believe that Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback that ever lived. Dating to, I, He sold me in 2007. Okay? Y'all hear the passion when I talk about Brady? It's because he sold me in 2007. How long ago was that? <laughs> Almost 15 years ago? I was on board. The guy had three Super Bowls. He was 10-0 in the playoffs. He had no weapons. To, I mean, he spent years throwing to linebackers in the Super Bowl for touchdowns. Um, I mean, he had no all-pro weaponry around him in terms of the skill positions. He had some good running backs, not amazing. He had some okay, pretty decent receivers, not great, and yet he was still winning championships, plural. His Whatever cast that he had got stripped even further. They let Deion Branch walk to Seattle. He gets the bag. There's nobody for him to throw to in 2006, and they still should have went back to the Super Bowl that year and played the Bears, and they probably would have won, I believe. Um, if they had a decent receiver, they would have beaten the Colts that day in the AFC Championship game because the Colts were getting slaughtered by the Patriots in the first two and a half, three quarters of that game, and then the Indy started coming back, and the Patriots had some bad drops that day, and the Colts were able to come back and win the game. But it was after that that <laughs> Belichick says, oh, okay, so between, between the fact that they didn't have any weaponry on the field and they lost to Indy and they blew that lead, and coupled with the fact that Spygate had just went down and people were trying to hang that over New England as the reason for all their success. Those two things converged, and as a result, they splurged on Wes Welker, Dante Stallworth, Randy Moss, and next thing you know, they have this juggernaut offense, and Brady is driving the Mercedes. And what happened? He shattered, like, every passing record that there ever was that year. (laughs) So it's like, you mean to tell me that this guy wins Super Bowls when he's throwing to average to below average players? And then when you get him exceptional targets, he breaks all the records and goes undefeated? That's what you're telling me? So that's when he sold me as being the GOAT. And here we are 15 years later, and there's still a small segment of the population that doesn't think he's the GOAT. And those people need to get checked because they need some help. But Brady's the, he's the GOAT. And I've, I've also said on this podcast on numerous occasions, he's the greatest American team sport athlete that ever was, uh, in my estimation. And uh, we'll never see another Tom Brady. We will never see it. The guy was a redshirt sophomore, walked into the NFL winning Super Bowls. The guy left the NFL um, going to a new team, winning a Super Bowl in his first year with a new team, and then left this year leading the league in passing yards, leading the league in touchdowns, setting a, a record for completions, uh, for a career, and he really, and I think for the season, if I'm not mistaken, and he should win MVP. He's not going to win MVP. They're going to give out the MVP tonight. They're going to, they're probably giving it to Aaron Rodgers literally within the next 15 minutes of me doing this podcast. But um, yeah, they're going to give it to Rodgers, and Rodgers doesn't deserve it because the only reason Rodgers is getting it, as you go back to the Wild Card Weekend podcast, I dove deep into it. Rodgers is getting this award because he threw less picks, and. I mean, that's basically it. <laughs> he threw less interceptions. That, that counts for something. But we know Brady's interceptions were tipped and dropped and whatever. 
the the experts that measure this stuff play by play say that Rodgers actually had a higher percentage of turnover worthy plays than Brady did slightly. But yet and still Brady had more picks. Rodgers didn't play one game and so we got to see what Rodgers backup looked like and that actually worked in Rodgers favor over Brady for some odd reason. And then Brady's bad game came on national TV. Those are the three reasons that Tom Brady's going to get shut out of his shut out of his fourth MVP award tonight. And it's a damn shame because he had a better season. And we saw it in the playoffs again. Once again, we saw what Rodgers was made of and we saw what Brady was made of. And Brady didn't win the championship this year, but we saw what he did against the Rams in that comeback. Um, Tom Brady, he, he walks in winning. He leaves the game winning. He did a ton of winning in between. Um, I'm writing a piece right now on Brady that will come out at some point. We just have to make sure that he's not going to come back as a San Francisco 49er on us because <laughs> that's still possible. But assuming that doesn't happen, uh, you know, assuming that uh, he decides to ride off into the sunset, we will release a, a story on Brady in the near future. Going back to championship weekend. God, I, I know I talk a lot about Tom Brady, man, but he's just the greatest. Like, I don't, y'all don't understand. But uh, So last week on picks, I went 0-2, and I'm still pissed. Somehow I managed to go 2-0 against the spread, but I went 0-2 on games. I'm 5-7 in these playoffs, which is, I think, by far my worst record ever picking games, which makes sense because I knew coming into these playoffs that it was pretty wide open. I'm 6-6 six six against the spread, y'all, so I apologize if I didn't make y'all any money. Um, my all-time records are updated at 73-36, and 36, picking games on this site in the playoffs, 11-9 on Championship Sunday. And uh, five and four in Super Bowls up to this point. Five and four are picking the Super Bowl. I, I guess now is probably a good time to apologize to the Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> Ted, I see you. I see you, Ted. Uh, yeah, a Bengals fan has made it very known that I, I need to come and get my uh, my comeuppance. I need to, you know, I, I had some linguine. I had some shrimp linguine for dinner. I should have. I should have not have had that. I should have been dining on humble pie with a side of crow, because uh, the Bengals have been making me look dumb, y'all. Um, I picked against them all three games. I picked against the Cincinnati Bengals, wild card weekend, divisional round against Tennessee, and in the Asian Championship game against the Chiefs. Every other game I pick against the Chiefs, unless they're playing Brady, they manage to win. Because Mahomes does the 17-step drop, closes his eyes, and throws it down the field, and somehow it lands in Tyreek Hill's hands. For whatever reason, it didn't work last week. It magically did not work. I don't, I'm not sure why. But when I pick them to win, they all of a sudden they can't do that rabbit-out-of-a-hat bullshit that they've been doing for three years. But, um, but yeah, those games are pretty wild uh, on Championship Sunday. This, these playoffs have been remarkable because although I am – Five and seven picking games in these playoffs. I have to defend myself. I, I have to defend myself. I have to. There have been eight close games. I am one and seven in those eight games. I can't believe it. I, I mean, like, the odds of this, this, like, parlay from hell. Like, I don't understand how it, out of eight games, I would miss all but one of them. Wild card weekend. It was the Raiders and the Bengals came down to the pretty much the final play. Bengals got an interception in the red zone on fourth down. Lost that one. It was the Cowboys and 49ers. I actually liked the 49ers better, but I picked the Cowboys because everybody was on San Francisco. And Dak ran the clock out, right? 
Then in the divisional round, we saw multiple close games. We saw the Rams and the Bucks basically came down to a last-second kick. I had the Bucks. The Bucks lost. We had the Titans and the Bengals came down to a last-second kick. I had the Titans. The Titans lost. Then we had the Bills and the Chiefs came down to a touchdown in overtime uh, by Kansas City, and uh, I had the Bills. The Bills lost. Then last week in championship week, we had two more games. We had the 49ers and the Rams come down to the wire. It wasn't quite down to the final play of the game, but it did come down to the final drive. San Francisco had a chance to win it at the end until they didn't, and they lost, and Jimmy G threw the, the – he, he had the Jimmy G play at the end of the game. And the Chiefs and the Bengals, which came down to a kick in overtime, and I had the Chiefs, and the Chiefs lost. Uh, that's, is that seven games? I, I'm pretty sure that's seven games by my count that I had. I, I had it. Uh, I mean, there were, there, there were toss-up games, 50-50. Tatina had the ball last, basically won those games. And I came out on the short end seven times. The only game that was close that I won was San Francisco over Green Bay when the Niners won on the last second kick. I can't, I mean, I don't know, man. This means nothing. Don't abandon hip-hop sports support now. (laughs) Y'all ought to stay, stay in this with us, okay? Don't abandon us now. But I'll tell you this. I will tell you, I will tell you this. I ain't got nothing for this Super Bowl. Right, like, I I can't I can't pick I can't pick a winner. Like like I, I'm clearly on a cold streak. And not to mention, these two teams, the 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 Rams. I picked. They played three times. I picked against them twice, and they won both games on the final play of the game, basically. And then the Bengals. I picked against them three times, and they won on the final play of the game, basically three times. And so. Bravo to these two teams that they've been able to out-execute their opponents multiple times down the stretch. But man, your boy can't catch a break. Like I, I can't, I can't call it. I've got no feel right now. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm picking games like I'm blind. I'm reading Braille trying to pick these games. Like I can't see nothing. So, but here's something that I was right about, and uh, this is for you, Ted, and, and all the Cincinnati Bengals faithful. That uh, that want to trash me, um, they they deserve it. They deserve the opportunity to trash me. But I will say this: here's something that I was right about. It's right about your quarterback. Mm-hmm. It was right about your quarterback. The Mark Draft Podcast, going back to 2020, April 2020. Here's what your boy said about Joey Burr. Joe Burrow. I said, not enough credit has been given for him for being the kind of prospect he is. His 60 touchdown to six interception ratio in college, along with 5,600 yards in the Heisman Trophy, was insane. I said that people knocked him because of the talent around him. He had one great year and not more than one great year, and that he ran from He ran from a challenge at Ohio State. And I said they were all weak, whack-ass arguments to try to discredit this kid because this kid was the real deal. I said that he excels in all of the uh, other elements of quarterbacking 
you know, like the accuracy, the leadership, the intangibles. I said he excelled in all of that stuff. The ability to come from behind, executing uh, in close games late, reading coverages, like all these things that make up being a quarterback. I'm not talking about slinging it sidearm with a sidearm angle. I'm not talking about running a 4 2 9 40. I'm talking about the stuff that actually matters when it comes to being a quarterback. I'm not talking about throwing it through a brick wall. I'm talking about placing the ball where it needs to be placed, executing late in games, being coachable, being a great teammate, galvanizing a locker room, being a leader of men, and being an exceptional talent. Like these, This is where Joe Burrow shined. And I, I said all this on the Mark Draft in 2020, April. Go back and listen to it. I said that he was better than all of the prospects in the Baker Mayfield draft, and I said he was better than all of the prospects in the Kyler Murray draft. On Twitter, I said that Joe Burrow was better than Baker Mayfield when Joe Burrow was still at LSU, and he was winning the championship. I'm like, he's better than Baker Mayfield. I'd take him over Baker today. This wouldn't be an HHSR podcast if I didn't take some pot shots at Baker Mayfield. I'm sorry. Some people said that Tua was better coming out. Like, remember, do you remember when Tua came out? Like, like, Tua was considered to be the best prospect in the draft. He was considered to be the slam dunk prospect, and the only reason he wasn't going number one was because he banged up his hip, and he had the hip injury. Which is why I don't buy this nonsense about people saying, well, I can't believe so-and-so took Miami or whoever took uh, Tua over J- uh, Justin Herbert, or I can't believe people had... Tua rated higher than Justin Herbert. Everybody had Tua rated higher than Justin Herbert. Everybody had Tua rated higher than Joe Burrow coming out. Tua Tungvaloa was the top prospect in the minds of most people at that time. I remember, y'all, it was just like two years ago. Like, this isn't ancient history. I was there, okay? I was there. I was taking in the coverage, and I disagreed with it. I'm like, Joe Burrow is that guy. And he's been out of this world in every conceivable way at LSU, and he's been out of this world since he's been in Cincinnati. I said he was up for the job of turning around the Cincinnati Bengals, and that all the criticism that Joe Burrow has received up to this point was lunacy. These are direct quotes from that podcast. So give me that much, Cincinnati. Give me that much. Okay? I I may have picked against your team three times, (laughs) but give me this much. Let me live, y'all. Let me live. Okay? I've been in Joe Burrow's corner from the get-go, and, and here's, here's the, okay, I just got the notification, Aaron Rodgers, the fifth player to win NFL MVP in consecutive seasons, joining Peyton Manning, Brett Favre, Joe Montana, and Jim Brown. What a joke. What a joke. I had him third on my fake ballot. Again, not to say that he's not deserving. of uh, he, was a, he was a worthy candidate, but he was not better than Tom Brady this year. He just wasn't. Like, ESPN even did a, a story the other day, uh, just the other day, and it broke down like how Brady and Rodgers, who was better. Let me see if I can find it again. Um, it was pretty hilarious to me because of the way they set it up. Um, yeah, NFL MVP Watch is what they called it. ESPN put out this piece, and I'm just, I'm just sidebarring real quick. And... Uh, <laughs> All right, here it goes. So quick sidebar. It says, NFL, final NFL MVP candidate watch 2021, Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady. And so here's the breakdown. 
they had Aaron Rodgers finishing first, and they had Brady finishing second, which we all kind of figured that was going to be. And it says, where does each guy have the edge? Passing, they gave the edge to Brady. Efficiency, they gave the edge to Rodgers, which is fine. But again, since when has efficiency been the main catalyst for electing somebody MVP? I don't know. They just made that up this year. Team resilience, excuse me, team reliance, they gave the advantage to Brady. Turnovers, they gave the advantage to Rodgers. But here's what half of the paragraph says. It says, according to Pro Football Focus, Brady has a slight edge on turnover-worthy play percentage at 1.9%. Rodgers was at 2%. Three of Brady's 12 interceptions came on wide receiver drops and another on a Hail Mary, which would classify as non-turnover-worthy plays. Rodgers, on the other hand, had 12 turnover-worthy plays on 587 dropbacks and did not have an interception on non-turnover-worthy plays this season. And then it says advantage Rodgers. <laughs> like they spent like four lines talking about Rodgers through less picks. And then they just undermine all of that with what I just read to you. And then they still gave the advantage to Rodgers. And that's why he won the award. That and because Ray, Brady had his dud on national TV at the end of the year. And because whatever the other reason I said earlier. I don't even remember what it was. Anyway, congratulations to Aaron Rodgers. Uh I hope to see you in a Cleveland Browns uniform next year. So, you know, again, give me that credit, Cincinnati. I, I've, I've always – I said at the time Joe Burrow was as good of a prospect as we've seen in, his long, in a long time. That was a direct quote again from the podcast. So I have all these quotes in my phone that I'm reading to you guys from the podcast at the Mark Jack. Go back and listen to it. I've always been a Joe Burrow fan and supporter, and I'm a little bit jealous as a Browns fan that he's in Cincinnati, okay? I'll just come right out and say that. Um. That Cincinnati pulled that game out in Kansas City was remarkable. Um, they just uh, Kansas City had them down bad. I mean, it was it was looking like it was going to get out of hand. I mean, I mean the Bengals. This I mean, like the, the Bengals are literally just flying on a magic carpet right now. And so it's kind of like everybody's saying the same thing going into this game, the Super Bowl, which is the matchup is horrible for Cincinnati and automatically favors the Rams. And guess what? That is true. But the Bengals really weren't supposed to be here anyway, so why can't they beat the Rams? Are the Rams unbeatable? Are the Rams some kind of juggernaut all of a sudden? Like, no. No. The Rams are favored by four. Um, and again, there's a recap. I picked against the Bengals three times and went 0-3. I picked against the Rams twice and went 0-2. And I'm one and two on Rams games in the playoffs overall. So combined, I'm one. I'm one and five picking games involving these two teams. So again, no feel. So let's just look at it. How how can how can the um, Bengals win? Well, they've proven they can win close games. They've proven that their kicking game is amazing in clutch situations. Shout out to the rookie McPherson. Jamar Chase could just be the best player on the field on Sunday. I mean, that's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. And the rapport that he has with Burrow going back to his time at their time together at LSU has clearly shown up this year. Uh, there's a chance Joe Mixon can control the game. We, we've been talking about him on the podcast consistently, and we haven't seen Joe Mixon really take over. And so, uh, 
yes, there's a scenario in which the Bengals lean on Mixon to really keep the Rams' pass rush at bay and take the load off of their uh, flimsy, to say the least, offensive line. But I don't think that's going to happen because, I mean, Joe Mixon, they haven't been – He's had some good games, but he has not been the reason why the Bengals have won any of these games. They've been leaning on Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, and so I think that's what they're going to do again. But maybe they can just run it enough to keep defense the, the Rams' defense honest. I think that's, that's all we can really ask for. Here's where it gets interesting for the Bengals and their prospects of winning the Super Bowl. Can they take Cooper Cup out of the game? At first glance, you would say, well, hell no. Nah, Cooper Cup can't be stopped. And uh, you know what? That's probably a good way to look at it because, well, let me read to you some Cooper Cup stats real quick. I have not pulled up here. The guy had 1,900 yards and 16 touchdowns on 145 grabs this year. This guy was my second runner. He's my first runner-up for MVP on my fake ballot behind Brady. Uh, just reading some of the numbers from Cooper Cup this year, nine catches for 136 yards and two scores against Seattle, 13 catches, 123 yards and a touchdown against Arizona, eight catches, 129 and a touch against Jacksonville, 10 catches, 156 yards, two scores against the Lions, nine catches, 130 and two scores against the Giants, nine catches, 163 yards and two scores against the Colts, Seven catches, 108 yards, and a score against the Bears. Um, just to name a few. Uh, even in the last game of the season, he caught all seven targets for 118 yards and a touchdown in that wild game against the 49ers that the Niners came back and won to make the playoffs. Basically, Cooper Cup has not been stopped this year. His lowest output of any game was a game against the Cardinals. He caught six balls on 13 targets for 64 yards, no touchdowns. That's his lowest output. And Cincinnati's defense, which has actually been uh, timely. They've had some timely stops and gotten some crucial turnovers in these playoffs. Cincinnati's defense is also prone to giving up the big play in the passing game. But here's where it gets really tricky. The Bengals shut down Tyreek Hill. The same Tyreek Hill that I compared to Steph Curry on last week's podcast He didn't do jack against the Bengals the first time they played him in Cincinnati. He caught six balls for 40 yards and no touchdowns. The Chiefs lost that game. In the AFC Championship game the other day, Tyreek Hill caught seven balls for 78 yards and a score. That's a good game, but that's a good good quarter by Tyreek Hill standards, right? Like, remember what he did against Buffalo the week before? He caught that, that slant route and just jogged past everybody into the end zone with like 30 seconds left in the game like that's the Tyreek Hill that we all know I mean seven for 78 and a score he can literally do that on one play he can out I mean he can't out on one grab he can outpace that and no to no one's surprise right so to see that the Bengals in that matchup were able to do that to Tyreek Hill and they basically took him out of two games is something special how the hell did I take Cooper Cup away? Cooper Cup's fast. He ain't Tyreek Hill fast, but he is arguably the best route runner in the league. And the Bengals did have a game against an excellent route runner earlier this year. His name was Devontae Adams. And in that game, Devontae Adams caught about 10 balls for 200 yards and a touchdown. So 
uh, you know, I don't really see the path for Cincinnati slowing down Cooper Cup. Here's some more stats for you. The Rams are 11-2 this year when Cooper Cup is over 100 yards receiving. He was under 100 yards in three of their five losses in the regular season. So, everybody knows Cooper Cup is going to get the ball a lot in this game. Can Cincinnati somehow take him away? I mean, do the opposite of what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did. Instead instead of losing him on big plays, of which there were three in that game, how about you just double him the entire game and you just take your lumps elsewhere? Um, You're going to have to deal with Odell and man coverage. You're going to have to deal with um, Van Jefferson, you know, maybe running a deep post route, and you're just going to have to make do. Um, You don't want to leave anybody open, but you can't let Cooper Cup beat you. This is not like basketball where if you're playing against a great offensive team and you would say, okay, we're just going to let that superstar get his points and we're going to shut everybody else down. This is what Shaquille O'Neal said that Phil Jackson used to tell the Lakers when they played the Spurs back in the early 2000s. Let Tim Duncan get all his points because certain guys can beat you scoring 40, 50, 60 points and other guys can't. Tim Duncan is too unselfish of a player to where he's going to keep abusing a one-on-one matchup to the tune of 50 or 60 points and then you lose the game. Tim Duncan's never done that in his life, okay? I don't think he ever did that in, in, in high school, right? On the Virgin Islands dunking on people. I don't think he ever did it back then. But you shut down Ginobili. You shut down Steven Jackson. You shut down Tony Parker. You shut down Steve Kerr. You shut down Brent Barry and uh, Matt Bonner and all these other Spurs you take those guys out of the game. You focus your attention on them. You let Timmy go one-on-one. You can do that in the NBA. You can't do that in the NFL. You cannot say, well, we're just going to single up Cooper Cup and, then, uh, and take everybody else away. We're going to take away Odell and Van Jefferson and Tyler Higbee and Sony Michelle and, and uh, Cam Akers. No. Cooper Cup will murder you. <laughs> he will murder you in your sleep, okay? Like, He will win the game by himself if you single cover him the whole game. So you have to find a way to take him away from the Rams' offense. I don't know how you do it. Nobody's been able to do it. Do you want to be champions? You got to do some difficult shit sometimes, okay? Figure it out. That's what the Bengals have to do. They got to take Cooper Cup away and hold him. This This sounds even insane for me to say. Hold him to under 110 yards. If they can hold him to under 110 yards and keep him out of the end zone... The Bengals got a really good chance of winning. Realistically, he's going to catch eight or nine balls minimum. He's going to get around 80 or 90 yards receiving minimum. But is he going to get 150 and two scores? That's where, that's where the rubber meets the road here, okay? Cincinnati has to find a way to slow that guy down. You might say Jamar Chase is going to play him to a draw. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Matthew Stafford relies too much on Cooper Cup to not force the ball to him. We saw him force the ball to him early on in the NFC Championship game, and it got picked off, okay, in the red zone. That was a horrendous pick by Stafford. He should have had two horrendous picks in that game. Jaquaski Tart dropped one late in that game, and we might have had a different outcome had he held on to that pop fly, which he should have. Shout out to my man Terry Palmer, who I referenced on the last podcast. We tried to get him on this one. We couldn't make the schedules work. 
Terry is a Rams fan. He called himself a quasi-Rams fan. I said on the last podcast he's from St. Louis. That's a lie. He's from East St. Louis, Illinois, so he'd probably be mad at me if I didn't correct myself there. He's from East, East St. Louis, Illinois, but they're still St. Louis fans in, in East St. Louis. Um, he Shout out to him because he correctly predicted the Rams would beat the 49ers. He said the Rams would win by blowout. That didn't happen, but he got the game right. This is more than I can say, but... Uh, he didn't believe that the tart dropped interception was a big play. I thought it had a pretty big impact because uh, the, the Niners were up. There was a lot of time left, but the Niners were up. The Niners had the momentum, and the Niners would have gotten a horrendous pick from Stafford and had the ball going another way, would have taken another possession away. The Rams ended up scoring on that possession, so um, you got to take advantage of your opportunities when they're there, right? The Bengals have been opportunistic on defense all throughout these playoffs. Uh, they picked off Tannehill three times. They picked off Derek Carr with the game on the line. They picked off uh, a defensive lineman, picked off Pat Mahomes, which flipped the game. And then they picked him off again in overtime. Uh, basically, tw- they, had, they got two cracks at it because Mahomes threw a pick six, which should have been to end the game. That would have been great to see. <laughs> but he, it got dropped. But then the next play got intercepted by Von Bell on a tip. So they've been opportunistic. They're going to have to do it one more time. They're going to have to take Cooper Cup away. They're going to have to force Stafford to try to force the ball to Cup anyway. Because I don't know that – I'm not as confident – even though Odell is still talented, I'm not as confident in Matthew Stafford's report with Odell, in spite of the fact that Odell's played well in the playoffs. Is, is he confident enough in Odell to where Odell Beckham is going to carry them to a championship on this stage? Is he confident enough in Van Jefferson and these guys? I don't know that it's to that degree. I feel, though, if – you make Matthew Stafford go anyplace else with the football besides Cooper Cup. He's going to get a little panicky. He's probably going to make a mistake. He's probably going to try to force one to Cup, and that's when you capitalize. So basically we're talking about is Matthew Stafford going to choke with the game on the line? I don't know. Uh, I've spent a lot of time talking about hypothetical scenarios in which the Bengals could win. What about the Rams? Well, the Rams have everything in their favor, as I mentioned earlier. This is a matchup for them. They have the best pass rush win rate of any team in football. They have Aaron Donald, who some people are now starting to you're starting to hear murmurs or rumbles that Aaron Donald may be the greatest defensive player ever in the NFL. I've heard that this week. You have Von Miller, who's already been a Super Bowl MVP, rushing the passer. And then you have this Bengals offensive line that was, I believe, third worst in the league in pass rush win rate, you know, uh, in terms of blocking on the pass rush. So it doesn't set up well. And it goes against everything in my understanding of what football is to be to ignore that. I'm a big believer of most football games are won in the trenches. What we saw two weeks ago, three weeks ago when Joe Burrow got sacked nine times and Tennessee lost the game. That was an aberration. Is Matthew Stafford going to come in here and throw three picks? Probably not. Is Joe Burrow going to get sacked a bunch of times? I don't know, but somehow Joe Burrow got better at scrambling. I've never, it's hard to envision somebody getting better at scrambling, but if you look at some of the scrambles that he had against the Chiefs versus his inability to get away from the Titans, it's like Joe Burrow's scramble rating. Is there a scramble rating on Madden? <laughs> Dude's scramble score went way up against the Chiefs. Um, so I don't know how that's going to work, but he's going to have to turn in the, 
I don't know what, Tyreek Hill <laughs> in the backfield, if he's going to get away from Aaron Donald and Von Miller and those guys. Um, the Rams have really only gotten in trouble when they've made mistakes, particularly in the Bucks game. They made mistake after mistake, and that's where they really got in hot water. But they've been great in these playoffs. Zach Taylor was McVay's protege, so now McVay's now like Belichick. When when he was playing Belichick in the Super Bowl a few years ago, he was the pupil. Belichick was the teacher, and now it's kind of the flip. Now Zach Taylor was the pupil, and McVay's the teacher. And the Rams have all the Super Bowl experience, and they've been there a couple times. And they have an elite defensive back that they can throw on Jamar Chase and try to take him out of the game. And the Bengals don't have that to throw at Cooper Cup. I would personally take the strategy. I like the other strategy better that some teams employ, uh, deploy, which is they take their star corner instead of shadowing the other team's best receiver because it's basically impossible to cover a receiver these days in the NFL and not get flagged. They just put your they shadow the second receiver with the number one corner, and then they double and bracket coverage. They throw that against the number one receiver all game. I kind of like that strategy better. Um that's what I would do to Jamar Chase, um, especially since Chase is faster than Jalen Ramsey, um, I believe. And uh, and Jalen Ramsey's a bigger corner, which means he would match up better with T. Higgins, who is a bigger receiver. So I would stick Ramsey on Higgins, and I would double and bracket against Jamar Chase all game long. And if they do that, if the Rams do that, I don't know where Joe Burrow is going with the ball. And I don't know how long that makeshift offensive line is going to hold up against Aaron Donald and Von Miller. But I really like Joe Burrow. And I really... So this is where I'm conflicted. I really like Joe Burrow. I really like... You know... This is this actually reminds me of the NBA Finals. Ironically, the Bucks and Suns are playing right now. But... Um, the NBA Finals went six games between the Suns and Bucks, and it was closer than what most people remember. They remember Giannis putting 50 on them, put the 50-piece nugget on them to win the championship. But that game, that series was decided by the final seconds of Game 4 and the final seconds of Game 5. That decided the whole series. Everything else was, you know, could have gone either way, but those two games, the Bucks were better in crunch time, and that's why they won the championship. I feel like, you know, and I guess you could say this about most NFL games, and so I get that. Don't bother correcting me on that, y'all, but bear with me. I just feel like the team that executes better down the stretch is going to win. I feel like this is going to be a close game. Everybody's picking the Rams. I feel like most people are picking the Rams. I feel like they're the safe pick, um, but Cincinnati was not supposed to make it this far. I like Cincinnati to cover, but unfortunately, I have to pick the Rams to win. And I say unfortunately because I would like to hop on that magic carpet and ride with Cincinnati a little bit. I would. And I picked against them three times, and so I know I deserve crap for that. But they have the experience. They have the advantage in the trenches. They have, um, you know, they don't have the better quarterback, I don't necessarily believe. But they probably have the better everything else. And... The, you know they have guys who have been in big games. They have uh, more blue chip, all pro talent on their roster. They have a coach who's been there before. Who who the you know the coach of the other team came off of his staff. I just I just feel like there's too many advantages for a Rams team who's playing at home. We had never couldn't even fathom a home team winning the Super Bowl until last year. Now we can have two in a row. 
and I think the Rams are going to do it. I think it's going to be close. I'll take the Bengals to cover the four points. I think it's going to be a narrow game, but I feel like the Rams are just going to make one too many plays down the stretch. I can see them getting a late sack that really cripples the Bengals and maybe puts them out of field goal range and, and keeps McPherson off the field or maybe it's a strip sack, sack fumble, something like that, and Joey B just had been running for his life all day and finally couldn't get away. Um, these things are harder to fix. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, if your offensive line stinks, it's hard to scheme up a scenario to make that better outside of you know your run game being dominant or just throwing a bunch of short passes, screens and things of that nature to take advantage of an overzealous pass rush or uh, just leaving tight ends and backs into chip uh, guys as they're coming in all night, um, which also limits and reduces the number of receiving targets on a given play. So, yes, the Bengals can do it. Um, yes, it'd be exciting to see him do it. I like Joe Burrow way more than Matthew Stafford, but I, I just feel like the Rams have enough to get the job done, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick the Rams. I'm not particularly proud of it. These teams are pretty evenly matched. They both performed the same in the regular season. They were both, I mean, similarly in the regular season, they, they both tied for seventh in uh, points scored per game, and they were around 16th in points allowed, both of them. So, I mean, these teams aren't that far off. So a Bengals victory would not shock me in the least. But um, I just, because I still am of the belief that even more than quarterback on probably more occasions than not, football games are determined in the trenches. And I believe that the Rams have such a decided advantage in the trenches that I'm going to pick them to win. It's, called a black man is gone. it's not cool. It's not sexy. I get it. And, and a lot of people are saying the same thing. And usually that's where you get in trouble. When everybody's saying the same thing, when everybody's saying that, hey, man, the Rams are going to dominate in the trenches and they're going to sack Joe Burrow a bunch of times, that means that they're probably not going to dominate in the trenches and Joe Burrow's not going to get sacked a bunch of times and the Bengals are going to win. I'll just have to accept that and, and hold my L like I've held seven times already in these playoffs. But let's just hope that it doesn't come to that. Maybe I got more one, one more trick up my sleeve. And with that, thus concludes our playoff podcast, Bonanza Blockbuster Extravaganza. Four podcasts back-to-back on the NFL playoffs. Um, did it a little differently this year, but I appreciate everybody that's listened. I appreciate all you guys listening to me ramble, uh, not only about these games, but about the Brian Flores situation and black quarterbacks. And I didn't even talk about Flores himself. I just talked about or black coaches. I didn't even talk about Flores himself. I just talked about the black coach situation in general. But uh, they're hand in hand. And I appreciate y'all listening to me talk about Brady a little bit more because it wouldn't be a podcast without that. Uh, I got some Baker Mayfield digs in there. Uh, it is a great podcast, y'all, even though I was riding solo dolo this time. Uh, hopefully we'll come back at y'all soon. If the Rams win, I'm sure Terry's going to be on this podcast uh, and he's going to have a lot to say. So uh, we look forward to that. And um, again, if you guys find the podcast, like, rate, subscribe, tell a friend. Do your boy that solid. And, uh, and we'll get back at y'all soon. It's the Hip Hop Sports Report Podcast. This is Jay Hicks signing off. Enjoy Super Bowl Sunday, y'all. Savor it because there's no more football for like 10 months. Peace. <laughs>